Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are times when you wonder what is going to happen next. This is one of those times. It's a Wednesday. It's the middle of the week. Uh, it's normally going to be quite an exciting lead up to Prime Minister's questions. But to be honest, I can't really work up much enthusiasm for it because I'll tell you why. Um, we're very distracted at the moment, it seems to me. We've got a government which is kind of moving from pillar to post. One minute saying it doesn't want to vaccinate children. The next minute say it does want to, however, make sure that teenagers have some kind of vaccine passport in order to gain entry to a nightclub. One minute they're saying uh, we're going to lock up loads and loads of these people traffickers who are bringing thousands of people into Britain on dinghies. And then the next thing you know, there's more and more thousands of dinghies arriving, more and more thousands of people arriving. Uh, and even as we speak, there will be beaches across the south and the east coast of this country uh, with people just walking off boats, walking into towns. I mean, the fact that we are somehow processing all of these people is a complete and utter nonsense. I saw some footage yesterday uh, of a load of people jumping off a boat, uh, being welcomed, it would seem, by people who were sort of signalling them in. And then there wasn't really any border force people there at all. So presumably, if you can do that and you can avoid the border force, you're already here. You don't even have to worry about being processed. You are now in Britain. And you can now do and see and say whatever you like. 0344 499 1000. Let's kick things off this morning with Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician and political commentator, of course. A man that used to work uh, with the Office of National Statistics. Jamie, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How's, how's freedom over there in England? Well, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of feels slightly more free, but I don't... I don't think freedom was the wrong word to use, really, because I don't feel free. I, don't, I can't go anywhere. I don't, you know, I can't just jump on a plane and disappear off to France or go away to America if I want to go and see my family, you know. So it doesn't really feel like freedom. But I guess compared to where you are in Wales, it's probably slightly open, more open. Yeah, well, Wales, we, we're going to lift all restrictions, uh, data permitting on August the 7th. I think Scotland are in the right direction. But looking at where you guys are in England, I think I think you're right with the travel. I think one of my concerns with the travel policy has been uh, there throughout, Mike, is more the fact that if, if people can't go abroad with all these costs of these PCR tests, and remember, yeah. we're testing over a million people a day at the moment. Majority of those tests are these lateral flow tests that the Americans have said, no good mm. the thing is if you can't afford the holiday in this country because everything's booked up if you're on low incomes you can't afford to go on holiday you kind of there's not much freedom in terms of going abroad and, and going about your daily lives at no. the moment, is there? And people talk about, oh, it's just a holiday, just deal, deal with it. Well, no, it's not just a holiday. For an awful lot of people, it's the one chance they get to get away. It's the one chance they get to spend a decent amount of quality time with their kids. Uh, it's the one chance they have to have a bit of relaxation. And, you know, if we can't get that, we're all going to go a bit mad, aren't we? Well, that's one of the things of the pandemic, Mike, that we've talked about before as well, is this this mental health crisis yeah. that's hit in the country, and in particular among younger people as well. So this offer of a hope of just, you know, going away, getting away from, from it all is, is, is there. And I think the the one concern that, that things start to creep up again now, Mike, which when it comes to these new variants that people talk about, worried about new variants, there's the beta variant now that seems to be coming in France and Spain. And in France, though, they, they seem to be having a policy where 
even if you're double jabbed, you still have to self-isolate. But they're not talking about bringing that in Spain. So in your intro there, you were talking about the, the government and all the conflicting decisions that are going on. It just seems carnage at the moment. And you'd think that with the country and the state that it's in at the moment, the, should the MPs or the people that all be going off be set? Should they be having a holiday themselves? Should they be getting back to work and showing some leading by example? Well, exactly right. I mean, I dare say Boris will, even for him, uh, try and avoid doing anything that might be considered to be uh, a little bit sort of show-offy. Like, I mean, no trips to Mystique with Carrie, you know, no trips to some uh, it's expensive Italian villa in Tuscany. And I imagine he will be under pressure to vacation at home, staycation-wise. Um, and I think any cabinet minister who goes abroad uh, will probably get pelters from, from the public, won't they? I'm sure they will, Mike. And uh, if we just probably touch a little bit on what's going on with the numbers anyway because i've heard that people are calling for further lockdowns in four or five weeks if things carry on as they are uh, one of the things that gets talked a lot about mike though and is obviously england the cases rising in england cases rising in wales mm. one thing that not talked about is scotland actually so mm. scotland had higher cases uh, in june than what they had at the height yeah. of the, kind of the winter well scotland month. was was it not in june the the, the the covid capital of europe wasn't it it was the COVID capital of Europe. And, and one of the things that's gone on there now, Mike, the last four weeks is cases have come down and they're coming down quite ra- rapidly now. Mm. It's difficult to infer exactly why. Some people are saying it's because um, Scotland got knocked out of the Euros, but Wales got knocked out of the Euros, Mike. There was no effect on cases in Wales. I won't put it down to that. But one of the things that we do see is the schools close a month earlier in, in Scotland. So it could be that the schools closing has meant that one of the factors that can help spread the virus, we know that children don't generally get relatively ill anyway, very hardly uh, anything at all with children. And it could be that we start seeing the same effect across England and Wales. And, and we hit that cases of 50,000 per day a few weeks ago, but they, they're not really still going up dramatically. 24, sorry, 20 to 24 year olds have been driving the rising cases, Mike, but that's starting to dip back mm. down. We're still not seeing the rising cases in all the people. So I think Professor Ian Ferguson said it's a, it's a certainty we're going to get 100,000 cases a day. I'd be surprised looking at the data. You know, I, I, it's, it's difficult one to predict, Mike, because we've never fully unlocked the country. Whether or not you could say even with the restrictions being eased, we haven't really fully unlocked at the moment. I think, do we hit 100,000 a day? I'm not so sure. We, we, that's one of the things we look, look out for in the next mm. few weeks. I mean, despite this vaccine passport argument that was rather surprisingly hurled upon us uh, on the briefing uh, on Monday afternoon. Up until that moment, it did seem to me as though the statisticians and the sage advisors and the medical guys had finally worked out that the cases actually don't matter as much as the deaths. And so they weren't drawing those same conclusions that they used to draw, saying, well, obviously, if the cases are still going up as fast as they are, then we're going to end up having to lock down again. It seems as though they've understood now that the, the vaccination programme has meant that the people, numbers of people dying is pretty steady now. Yeah, so people are talking about rising people in hospital. Remember now in January, if you look at all the beds, over 30% of them are full of COVID patients. But at the moment, it's just under 3%, 2.6 roughly for yeah. general and acute beds. And then if you look at the, the cases, so when we had 50,000 cases back in, in the winter, it's normally that lag, Mike. So about two weeks after we saw 50,000 cases, we had over 1,000 deaths in, in you know across the UK. We're currently averaging around 36 a day. There's a big number yesterday, but yeah. on a Tuesday, you sometimes get this lag over the weekend that's going on. Yeah. I'd be surprised if in two weeks' time, we've even hit over 100. Mm. So deaths are down 90% from what they've got uh, for the peak of the pandemic. The cases are definitely coming back. We'll probably start coming back down over the coming months as well. So yeah, that link is clearly being broken. But I think the, the government, it's all the fear that's been put in the last year. People are still scared. Even if you're vaccinated, people are still scared to go out and do a lot of things. And 
And that's what's called, kind of causing this kind of anxiety out there. The people are talking about COVID anxiety, Mike, because people are thinking, well, if I get COVID, I'm going to die. And unless you're like one of the severely elderly or people who got underlying health conditions, this is a virus that doesn't mm. hugely impact on them. Yes, because and one of the questions be- I always have, Jamie, and I don't know whether you can answer it, is of those 36 people that did die uh, yesterday or who were registered as having died yesterday, precisely how many of them were elderly? How many of them had underlying health conditions? How many of them were young, fit individuals? You know, we sort of need to know that, don't we? Yeah, so there is a bit of a lag between finding some of that out, Mike, but most of the deaths continue to be among elderly people and remember these are these that the deaths are reported these are deaths that where there's been a co- positive covid test and you're never going to if when's covid in society mike you get a certain percentage of people dying every single day and obviously the older you are the more likely you are to die so we get deaths every single day if covid is there across society people are going to die and test positive with covid the key thing is how many people are dying because of COVID. Mm. Numbers have been relatively low. And, and I'll tell you an interesting thing, Mike. I was looking at the, the latest figures from the ONS um, yesterday. So they published the data up to the, the weekend in the 9th of July. And deaths now have started hitting that above average for the time of year again, where we talk about excess deaths. But this isn't all down to COVID. If you look at the number of deaths above average, it cannot be explained by COVID. We're starting to see rises in deaths from pneumonia and flu. Mm. And... The, the key thing that's driving all of this, so since March, Mike, across um, across the country, the number of deaths in hospital has been significantly lower than average than you would have expected. So it clearly shows people are probably still not going to hospital. And what these excess deaths are, and it'll take a while probably for the OLS to come up with the full underlying causes of all of these, is people dying at home. So the question for me is, are people still too scared to go to hospital and seek medical attention? Because throughout the pandemic, more and more people have been dying at home than what we saw pre-pandemic. And this is probably a national scandal about what's going on, Mike. Yeah, it really is. And again, um, you know, once we sort of move away from this nonsense of having to completely and utterly report every single death every single day, and I noticed the Telegraph this morning doesn't have their normal uh, statistics on the front page, because that was quite useful for me when it would always show something in in the area of about 1,500 people dying from all sorts of other reasons apart from COVID. Yeah, so the majority of deaths, I think people keep thinking the majority of the deaths are people from COVID. At the peak of the wave one and the peak of the wave two, it was still more people were dying of other things, but it was a significant contribution to the number of excess deaths. But deaths have been below average. I expect them to continue to go up over the next month. As cases go up, deaths will go up, hospitalizations will go up, but that vaccine has broken the link. And that's the most important thing. If it's no point having a vaccination program and not getting the benefit from the vaccination program because this time last year people could go on holiday anywhere they were wanted and we hadn't even had anybody vaccinated we didn't even have a vaccine this time last year mike so you've got to realize that there's a benefit to a vaccine and if you've had the vaccine why are we still asking people to self-isolate why are you still not allowing people to go on holiday without all these pcr tests something needs to change mm. I think you're absolutely right. Stay with us, Jamie. Uh, we're going to take a little short break. We're talking to Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician, of course, the man uh, who knows all about the numbers and why they say certain things uh, and why they reveal how things have changed since the beginning of this pandemic and since the beginning of this year as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
We're talking to Jamie Jenkins right now, independent statistician, political commentator. Um, the problem we're going to have, I suppose, Jamie, is as we move through the summer, and this is probably last PMQs uh, before that happens, um, August is going to be a big uh, month for you in Wales. It'll also supposedly be the time when um, some of this self-isolating nonsense gets put to bed, doesn't it? Um, and people who have been double-jabbed won't be self-isolating. Um, because we've still got a problem with this app, haven't we? Well, we've got a massive problem with the app. You, some people would say the app's doing the job that it's supposed to do. It's, it tells people if you've been in close contact with somebody. But I think for me, where the problem with the app now is, Mike, that you can't have a, a policy where a Freedom Day, for example, happens where you allow people to go about living their daily lives, where we go in to live with the virus. Cases are going up because we inevitably, even Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty have talked about an exit way when, when you unlock, cases will go up. And then you start pinging everybody uh, who's basically been in close contact. And sometimes, Mike, it could be that I think the, the stories have been you could be living next door to somebody, you've been pinged through the wall. So you can't have a policy where you've got to isolate where you've been coming into close contact because ultimately the economy is just going to close down. And we're seeing you know, lorry drivers self-isolating, so supermarket shelves might be closed, factory lines are going to be kind of closed down. And they're changing the rules now, Mike, as well, for, for NHS staff, because I know people work in the NHS and they're saying that they can't get enough staff because yeah. people are self-isolating. And the rule changes here is that you can take these tests and go into work every day. But the, the thing for me on this is we've, we've talked in the past about the fact that, you know, hospitals are one of the most deadly places to mm. catch COVID. And a lot of people have gone into co into hospitals without COVID and have caught her in there. So if it's good enough for NHS staff to be able to go about doing some daily testing to continue to work and go about their daily lives, why isn't the rest of the population able to do that where they're not coming into close contact with other people? Yeah. So, well, it obviously doesn't work at, on various levels because on the one hand, you've either got people switching the app off anyway. Uh, secondly, you've got people who are supposed to self-isolate but not bothering to do that. Uh, and thirdly, uh, if you are self-isolating without really needing to, um, it's a drain on the economy. Exactly that, Mike. And, and remember now, the app, it doesn't mean that you have to self-isolate. If you're contacted by a contract tracer, there is a legal requirement to do that. If you contact, if you get pinged by the app, there's no legal requirement. It's more guidance, and more and more people are, are knocking the kind of the app off. And and I think as we go into the, the coming months, Mike, I think I was just looking at the latest data for for Boris's approval rating, which has gone down. He had that vaccine bounce, mm. and I think the vaccine passports starting to see his approval rating going down now. I think over the country and Keir Starmer's less than that. What's intriguing for me with the whole vaccine passport debacle as well, Mike, is in Wales. Normally, Mark Drakeford's kind of the person who wants all of the restrictions that he can put in. Mm. He's come out last week and issued a statement again saying it's not the role of government to implement vaccine passports. So you could have this vaccine tourism where people think, well, if I want to go clubbing, I don't want to show a vaccine passport. I'll pop over to Wales Off or something. Off to Carmarthen. <laughs> well, you never know. But people just, I think, are not going to be seeing this happening. In and my view is that this is a bit of a red herring that, uh, that Boris Johnson's thrown out there because they do seem obsessed with getting more and more people vaccinated, despite the fact that some of those people might not want to get vaccinated. And I wonder whether this is just a kind of a ruse to try and warn people that if you don't get vaccinated, you won't be able to do anything and then see how that goes. I, I'm in the same camp as you with this one, Mike, because remember many, many months ago, they were saying that, oh, we're never going to introduce vaccine passports. They probably had some meetings in the department and thought, well, how are we going to get the vaccination rates up for younger people? Yeah. Oh, well, if we put this one out, the word on the street will be, oh, you need to get your vaccine to go out. Now, obviously, let's look at the vaccine itself. So Sajid Javid is a good example. What Sajid Javid proves is that 
the vaccine doesn't stop you getting the virus, even if you are double jabbed. Mm. What the, the science behind it all, Mike, is that if you've had a vaccine, it'll reduce the viral load and stop you spreading it. But remember, the, the younger people we're talking about here now, the flu is deadly. We see the flu killing many people across the country every single year. And we don't actually mandate vaccinations for people with the flu. We also don't mandate vaccination passports for people with the flu either. No. So whilst there's the benefit, the benefit of having the vaccine reduces the younger people are. And that's why the government have come out this week, Mike, and said they're not going to vaccinate all children. Mm. So I think having this threat of vaccine passports under the kind of the, the guise of if you can't go clubbing, you can't go into events. You know, are people going to be able to go on the tube? Because that's going to be an enclosed space by the end of September. Well, I mean, I I'm, I'm with you. I can see, imagine it, it's, it's more of a coercion tactic. Yeah. Whether or not it will actually happen is another thing. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Absolutely right. Jamie, thanks very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician and political commentator, of course, there on the subject of where we are now, which is kind of nowhere again. It feels like we're nowhere, doesn't it? We're not in a free state. Uh, we are not in a lockdown state. We're not really anywhere. We're sort of somewhere in between. Do you know what I'm saying? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Another big story uh, that happens as a result of an interview last night with Laura Kunzberg and Dominic Cummings. Uh, we're going to talk now uh, to our good friend, Mr. Joe Twyman, co-founder of the public opinion consultancy Delta Poll. Joe, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I watched it last night with a mixture of sort of wonder and dread, really, because Dominic Cummings clearly seems very impressed with himself. He seems to be the only man in Britain who who thinks that he should have been running the country rather than the man who was actually elected to run the country. Um, and I found his um, rather, I don't know, um, bitter takedown of Boris Johnson rather unsavoury, really. Uh, well, I think that uh, I think that a lot of people would agree with you. But at the same time, if you're an opponent of uh, if you're an opponent of Boris Johnson, it's highly likely that you would, uh, shall we say, hold your nose when it came to uh, when it came to Dominic Cummings and, uh, and support his attack on the prime minister. I imagine that if people are paying attention to the specifics of the interview, they'll be seeing things through a, uh, a political prism. And, uh, and their views will be led by, uh, by their wider political views. I'm not sure that the interview itself uh, will make a massive, long-lasting difference no. to, the, uh, to the position of the government or indeed the personal ratings of Boris Johnson or, uh, or Dominic Cummings. But it's, uh, it's one of these things that always has the potential to make an impact and the cumulative effect over, uh, over months and indeed years up until the next election could be something that proves to be important. I suppose so, but I mean, I don't think he said much that he hadn't already said to the parliamentary committee, which he appeared before uh, for something like seven hours a few weeks back. And, and there was no real revelatory story. Uh, the papers have picked up the fact that he discussed ousting the prime minister just sort of more or less days after he got elected in December 2019. But that came across as, as, as kind of the actions of a man um, who thought that he was the puppet master when, in fact, it turned out he really wasn't. Because if he was as powerful as he's pretending to be, how did he get fired? Uh, you're right that a lot of it ha we have heard uh, we have heard before. And although there was some detail around, as you said, uh, the ousting of the prime minister and indeed uh, and indeed the question about whether the prime minister should have gone to visit the queen at the mm. start of the coronavirus outbreak and whether that would have endangered her. All of that is is very much specific detail that doesn't really change the uh, the overall story of what was uh, of what was said. And Dominic Cummings clearly uh, clearly is uh, very upset or disappointed or however you want to characterize it with his uh, with his situation mm. but the fact is that uh, uh, that it was the prime minister that um, uh, that 
remains, if you like, on top. Mm. Well, quite. And also, slight sort of complication for Cummings, um, who uh, we should listen to just now discussing ousting Boris in a second. But but it's quite, it's quite weird because he was largely and chiefly responsible for making sure uh, that Boris did actually get into Downing Street. But let's have a listen to what he said. No? Can't have a listen to what you said? No, it's not there. Is it there? No. Never mind. We won't listen to what you have to say. Um, so, you know, I mean, having having sort of constructed the vote leave uh, arguments, having constructed all the things that uh, that he wanted to do with Boris Johnson, it seems rather extraordinary uh, that he would want to get rid of him as soon as he did. Uh, well, uh, he has made the claim repeatedly, both in the interview and uh, and in uh, much much more length in his uh, in his blog posts and in his submission to Parliament that uh, that it was about achieving particular uh, particular aims, mm. and that uh, and that the trade off between having Boris Johnson in in power to deliver Brexit was far better than uh, uh, than having Jeremy Corbyn in power, for instance, to deal with the uh, to deal with the pandemic. I, I guess he would describe it as pragmatic and uh, an example. Of, uh, of what geeks like me call realpolitik, simply uh, simply the reality of politics coming in and uh, and being the most important thing above all uh, above all else. Uh, but he then, of course, went on to question whether Brexit was definitely a good idea or not, and uh, and cl- claimed that uh, uh, that anyone who was certain that it was was uh, was perhaps confused. So lots of uh, lots of competing uh, competing stories, shall we mm. say, coming out of this in terms of uh, his direction of thought. Yeah, and also given his complete and utter distance for most journalists. It's quite unusual that he picked the BBC to do this particular interview with. I think we can now hear him uh, discussing ousting Boris. Literally immediately after the election, it was already clear that this was a problem. Before even mid-January, we were having meetings in Number 10 saying, it's clear that Carrie wants rid of all of us. At that point, we were already saying that by the summer, either we'll all have gone from here or we'll be in the process of trying to get rid of him and get someone else in as Prime Minister. But you've just said that within months of the Prime Minister winning the biggest Conservative majority in decades, you and a few others from the Vote Leave campaign were discussing the possibility of getting rid of him. Days, not months. Within days of the election, you were discussing getting rid of him? Yes. It's quite extraordinary, really, that, uh, that there are people who talk in these terms who don't appear to have been elected, who don't appear to have had uh, any role other than being sort of mates of the Prime Minister, because that's really who they are. And the fact that they fell out with him based around his uh, his girlfriend, his fiance, his now wife, seems bizarre to me, Joe. Well, I mean, we don't know the uh, we don't know the real story. Of course, well, uh, we have Dominic Cummings' uh, version of events, and I'm sure the version coming from Carrie Simmons, now Carrie Johnson, and Boris Johnson would would differ from that. And uh, and I don't think we'll ever find out what the actual uh, actual truth was. But there's no doubt uh, that uh, that the public, particularly, are uh, are generally, shall we say, sceptical, mm. if not necessarily hostile, to people in positions of power who have not been uh, not been elected. And this has a long and glorious history. I mean, Alistair Campbell, Steve Hilton, uh, we, we love that the idea of that sort of Svengali character pulling the, uh, uh, pulling the strings behind the scenes, even if sometimes it's not, uh, it's not, entirely, uh, not entirely accurate. Yes. And if it's true to say that Boris's approval rating has gone down a little recently, is that more likely to be to do with his own policies rather than what anything Dominic Cummings has been saying? 
Uh, this will be linked almost certainly in large part to the government's perceived performance on dealing with the COVID pandemic. Mm. Uh, for the last 15, 16, 17 months, however long it's been now, uh, the popularity of the government and indeed Boris Johnson's own personal popularity has correlated very strongly with that perception of how well or badly the government is dealing with the pandemic. If you go back to the end of last year and the period of cancelled Christmas, uh, it was perceived to be going much worse and Labour indeed were ahead in some of the polls. Fast forward now to, uh, to eight months later and we see a situation where the vaccine rollout particularly is perceived as having been very successful mm. and although cases are rising and there are questions about the Delta variant and, and there are, shall we say, doubts about whether, uh, whether full lockdown should have been relaxed. Uh, all of those questions remain, but the perception is still that the government is doing a, a good job compared to, uh, compared to how they were and that places them in a good position. But it has taken a drop in recent, uh, in recent weeks because of those reasons that I mentioned and that has taken a hit on, the government, mm. on both the government and the Prime Minister's ratings. The question is, over the next few months, how will that perception change? What will the reality on the ground with the virus mean for that rating? And what will that mean for the Conservative government and for Boris Johnson particularly? Right. And finally, Joe, let's talk about uh, Sir Keir Starmer. He's managed to survive the kind of the spring uh, by-election season, if you like. Uh, some people are rather sorry that that's the case. Some people are not. Um, is he going to survive until the actual next general election, do you think? I think that's highly likely, yes, for a number of reasons. Firstly, Labour is uh, simply, in historical terms, has shown itself very, very unwilling to oust leaders during uh, during parliaments. They mm. tend to wait until the elections, unlike the Conservatives, of course, who are happy to, uh, happy to throw people out of the drop of a hat. But uh, also, we haven't seen Keir Starmer tested yet in a period of, if you like, normality or anything approaching normality. Yeah. He's been leader the entire time during the coronavirus when everyone's attention has been on that, to at least to some extent. For many people, it's been the only game in town. And so you can't really say, oh, well, look at this particular poll or this particular rating and say that he's doing a good or a bad job, because these are completely unprecedented times. But I think a year down the line, when, uh, when people are starting to talk and think about other things other than the virus, then he will be able to show whether he is or is not the right person for the job. But it's, uh, it's really not the circumstances at the moment to judge whether that's the case. OK. Joe, thanks very much indeed. Joe Twyman there, co-founder of the Public Opinion Consultancy Delta Poll. Uh, we may be stuck with Sir Keir Starmer for a while, uh, which is probably great news if you happen to support the Tory party, but not such great news uh, if you're in the Labour Party, because he spent last weekend apparently purging all sorts of people out of the party uh, who uh, he wanted to get rid of uh, from the left wing. Now, I call me old fashioned, but if you get rid of the left wing uh, and then he got rid of some of the anti-Semites in the party, uh, you're not left with very many people, are you? 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Laura, a very good morning to you. Hello. We should say this is normally where Tonya Buxton would be sitting, but she's off on her holidays and she was hoping to come in today, but she's not feeling very well. So I hope you're feeling better, Tonya. Laura, I'm delighted that you've been able to come in uh, in her stead. Um... And uh, what have you got to say for yourself? Because there's a lot to talk about, isn't there? Oh where should we begin? Goodness, where do we begin? Well, let's begin with Freedom Day, which lasted for 17 hours. Yes. Woo! Not really a whole day at all, really. No, not even a day. You're right, it's not even a day, is it? It no. was Freedom 17 hours. Right. Um, OK, so I want to rewind a bit. Mm. Before Boris Johnson's announcement of five, which filled our hearts with joy. Yeah. Let's just go back to midnight. At midnight, we saw footage of teenagers, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds queuing outside nightclubs yes. to get in. Now, Which warmed some, the heart, didn't it? Well, it did mine, although some commentators were a bit sneery, a bit disdainful, a bit judgmental. And I think people take that position with the young quite often. Mm. I cheered them on. I thought, yes, yeah. you know, you've got 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who have never been clubbing. And let's not forget, they made huge sacrifices in the yeah. last six, 16 months. They had to give up examinations, education, sports, yeah. relationships, dating. Right. I mean, like this is the time. Just sociability when as well. Sociability. And when you start making those bids for freedom and going to clubs, and they couldn't even try and get into them illegally a bit early because right. they were shot. So right. I saw them queuing to get, and I thought, amazing. Now, the first afternoon... They're probably, you know, still recovering with their, their first hangovers mm. from their first club night. Yeah. Um, you know, drink responsibly. I'm not saying everyone should have a hangover, but they probably did. Yeah, probably. And the news they get is if you want to keep doing that, you have to be vaccinated, mm. like it or not. And there was something about that I just found really depressing. Yes. Because it doesn't feel like this is being made for a scientific reason as such, more a behavioural science yes. reason. It feels like it's a nudge. That's what I it think. You see, like I, it's I think the more I, at first I was shocked, like everybody else. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I don't see how they can even make this work. I don't see how they can police it. Mm. And then I started to think, could this really? Are we now living in such a cynical environment that they're just saying this to get more people vaccinated before September? I think so. Like, first of all, this is very unpopular with the nighttime industry. Mm. Clubs, restaurants, bars, they don't want it. The other thing is that there was actually a Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee inquiry mm. into COVID passports, and they found there was no scientific justification for right. them. Now, if you take out the scientific justification, what you're left with is a behavioural science justification. Now, the previous plans had negative tests and natural immunity, yeah. so you didn't have to just be vaccinated. There were options. So the plans that Boris Johnson floated have taken those They've options taken out. those options away, which it's, was the most shocking thing, wasn't it? It's just about driving vaccine uptake. Yeah. So to me, this looks like it's nudge, except really nudge should preserve choice. Yes. And I feel like there's an element of blackmail. It's saying to, to young people, come on, be good mm. boys and girls. Right. Take medicine, whether you like it or not. Otherwise, you don't get your privileges yes. back. And again, you have to ask the question, why? Because I don't understand their obsession with vaccinating people because, you know, some people will not want to take the vaccine and that is entirely their right. And I would never tell somebody to do something that they didn't want to do. 
simply because it's not any of my business. There seem to be people out there who, who think it is their business, but it's certainly not the government's business. I don't, but it just doesn't really make sense because mm. I, there's lots of reasons why I would disagree with a COVID passport. Like you say, choice and informed consent. People can have cultural and religious reasons not to want to be vaccinated. They might think that the risk calculus doesn't make sense in their case. They might mm. just not want to be. Right. Okay. So there's lots of reasons. But where was I going with that first point? Sorry, there's, there's lots of reasons not yeah. to want to be vaccinated. Um, but the good news is that nine out of 10 people in Britain have got antibodies mm. right now yes. to COVID, either from having had COVID and recovered or from vaccination. Um, coming up for 90% of the country have had their first yeah. dose. Which is surely and, way higher than they were hoping for in the first place. Well, it, it seems amazing. And it also exceeds the goalposts mm. that have been set at different times yeah. during the epidemic. And it's only about a third of 18 to 30 year olds who haven't been vaccinated mm. so far. So we're nearly there. So we're getting to a point of diminishing no returns. What would be the point of introducing a really expensive system that a lot of people don't want and the industry doesn't mm. want? when we're already nearly there. I've got a feeling they're trying to chuck everything at this yeah. to encourage people to be vaccinated by September. Yes, and then come September, they'll go, actually, we're not going to do it after all. But yeah. it proves that they're willing to threaten to do it, which is almost as bad in my view, you know, because particularly as it comes a couple of days after Sajid mm. Javid, who has been double jabbed, uh, gets COVID, which I thought was particularly ironic, you know, on uh, on Saturday. Uh, and then we saw what the Prime Minister and, and Rishi Sunak did on the Sunday. Because it doesn't actually stop somebody from going into a club and spreading COVID anyway, does it? No, and I mean, that's why there wasn't a strong scientific case that was presented in the inquiry. So the government's put forward these plans on once again with no evidence to make the case mm. and no impact assessment. Throughout the epidemic, the government has been very remiss in presenting evidence to support the policies they want to bring in. Yeah. And it's not good enough. Parliamentarians mm. should be getting off the back bench and really causing a stink about this. Yes, and not least because, uh, 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 at the very least, Nadim Zahawi had said and had promised that the government would never introduce vaccine passports, mm -hmm. not that long ago. In fact, Claire Fox sent him a tweet and he and she, she asked him to double, you know, guarantee that it wouldn't happen, and he did. Yes, so that taps into a really important issue here, which is trust. He made that promise that there was no plans to introduce vaccine passports at a time when the government had awarded eight contracts mm. to develop them. They keep changing the goalposts about what it is they're after in the vaccination drive. And this proposal yesterday, it's very, uh, on the 19th, it's very hard to really assess it because there weren't actually any details or delineation around mm. the plan. Is it just nightclubs? Not necessarily. Boris Johnson. It's unclear, said, isn't it? Other crowded venues. He also yeah. said the government reserves the right to introduce mandation whenever they want. Right. And also said, this was particularly threatening, I've written this down, some of life's most important pleasures and opportunities are likely to be increasingly dependent on vaccination. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, I know. How do we know if this is a good plan or not? Without the evidence and with such a vague parameter, right. it sounds like a threat. It does. And it also immediately um, blocks people for, as you say, many different reasons who haven't had a vaccination, don't want to have one, mm. from doing these things that he says everybody should have the right to do. And it mm. is a very... It's not a very subtle, even, manoeuvre to remove freedom, is it? It's not subtle. Now, if you're somebody who just hasn't got round to it yet, this might give you the impetus. You might go, oh, crikey, mm. I was going to book my appointment. I'll get on with it because I don't want to be barred from clubs. Right. If you're someone who's not sure, you know, if you're vaccine hesitant, as they say, I don't think this is going to push you over the finish line. No. I think it's going to do the opposite. Mm. And in fact, there's um, an all-party parliamentary group called Vaccinations for All, and they've specifically advised 
that mandating and coercing vaccines creates the opposite effect. We've not had any laws in this country to mandate vaccines since 1898 for a reason. Mm. It creates the opposite effect. Yes. That created an anti-vaccine movement and violent protests. I mean, when um, Macron announced similar plans yes, in France... that didn't go well, did it? There were protests and actually some vaccination centres were burnt down. Mm. I think the government's playing with fire yeah. with this proposal, I to think be honest. So. And also, wasn't it odd? I thought it was odd anyway, because I watched Sahawi saying it first, and when he said it in the House of Commons, I thought I'd misheard him, you know. And it wasn't until Boris then said it later that I realised I hadn't misheard him. But he mm. also said... Uh, which I was more expecting them to do, that they weren't going to vaccinate children, apart from children who were, um, you know, suffering from various different, you know, health problems and health issues. They were going to offer it to them. You know, so I was quite happy with that because I don't want my children vaccinated. I don't think anybody should want to have their children vaccinated against something which they don't need to be vaccinated against. And so they sort of went literally from one end of the spectrum about freedom for children to the other. Mm. Well, the thing with freedom is the clue is in the word. Mm. It's it's supposed to be free. And what I didn't like about the announcement on so-called Freedom Day is it shows it's nothing about freedom. It's about the um, licence of privileges yeah. if you behave in the way the government wants you to. Yes. And I think that if this is a nudge, if it is a behavioural science double bluff, and how depressing that mm. we're talking about government announcements, ministerial announcements in those terms... Yeah. If it is, it's got the potential to backfire and it's not really how I want to be governed. No. I want to be governed with truthful information, honesty, yeah. transparency and not double bluffs no. or mind games. And I've been saying all week um, when, when I get particularly worked up about it that, you know, they forget that we employ them. It's not the other way around. You know, we do not work for Boris Johnson. He works for us and the government works for us. We pay our taxes so that they can run the country and be paid by the mm. taxpayer. And they seem to have forgotten that all over the world. I don't know if you saw something which was particularly disturbing over the weekend. Jacinda Ardern down in New Zealand gave a press conference at which she actually said that all information that comes from any source other than the government about coronavirus should be ignored. You should not listen to anybody else apart from the government. We will give you the information and that will be the only information that you will need. And I'm going, really? Since when did you become, you know, Lord God uh, and Master of the Universe? And what are, you, what are you saying to me now exactly? You're saying that you're now controlling the flow of information. This is not what you want to hear from any government. So it may be there was misinformation abounding. It may be that the New Zealand government is the correct source for information on a particular issue. But no government should say they are the single source yeah. for information. There's a word for that. And yeah. it's propaganda. Exactly right. Which brings us on to the, uh, the, the, the Official Secrets Act and the, the, the manoeuvrings mm. that are going on behind the scenes. Because I think we have to be very careful, Laura, that we don't lose track of some of the other stuff that the government's doing. And particularly in the wake of Matt Hancock and the CCTV footage of him and his uh, beau, yeah. uh, whatever her name was, Gina. Um, you know, they're trying up, uh, to introduce um, legislation which will prevent journalists, uh, news outlets, broadcasters, whatever doing things which could embarrass the government. I mean, what does that even mean? I think it's really sinister. Mm. Now, this isn't a news story. Um, I read about it back in January, but I'm really pleased to talk to you about it today because it's been resurrected in Press Gazette and Daily Mail this yeah. week. Now, like you say, this isn't a bigger backdrop. We've also got the police crackdown bill, which looks to ban noisy and annoying protests. Yes. Now, protests can be noisy and annoying, yeah. and that's part of the point of them. Yeah. Um, they don't always work. They didn't stop the Iraq war, but we do have gay marriage. Mm. So protest is good and it's part of being in a democracy, as is a free press. Yeah. So the proposed changes to the Official Secrets Act could see journalists 
um, being jailed, mm. being treated in the same way as spies if they disclose um, leaked documents that are under the Official Secrets Act. Now, the media should be there to hold the government to account. It shouldn't only be the government that decides what is in the public interest, and that's what the government wants. Mm. So the National Union of Journalists put forward um, that there should be a public interest defence for journalists, yes. and the government is not taking that forward. Right, as no there should be protection for whistleblowers, because, I mean, I was quite disturbed to see that the Office of the Commissioner for Information um, was ordering houses to be checked out, uh, places to be raided, computers to be seized in the hopes that they would find whoever leaked the Matt Hancock tape. Now, surely the whistleblower who was involved in that, and as far as I know it was a whistleblower, uh, should have protection in the law, shouldn't they? Well, I think so. I mean, I'm, I, I certainly think the journalist, the journalist who covers it should. Mm. Um, now, I, as soon as I saw that Matt Hancock story, I thought the story is in who's behind the camera. That's what I'm interested mm. in. I don't really want to see the salacious details of Matt Hancock snogging somebody no. at all. No, it made, and, me quite, made me feel quite unwell, <laughs> actually, to be honest. I'd really rather not see it. And, and there is an argument that he should have a private life. But is that in the public interest? Well, yes. I don't think he should have a private life in his own office. I mean, I don't think that's where you have a private life. If you want a private life, you have to have a private life at home or in somebody else's home. Quite. But that's one of the arguments that's put forward. He's entitled mm. to a private life. But that was work. And they were supposed to be socially distancing yes. at work and only there for work reasons. So what it did was it exposed hypocrisy. Mm. It exposed double standards at a time when he was spending hundreds of millions on ad campaigns yeah. telling people to follow the rules right. because it's so dangerous. Ah. So it also exposed what he felt about the true severity of the danger at the time. There's a lot that's mm. important about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Oh, I think the actual clinch itself was of minor importance. It was quite funny and a bit embarrassing, but it wasn't the reason he had to resign. No, exactly. So that's a very specific recent example. But of course, there are others like Snowden. Mm. I mean, journalists need protection from the Official Secrets Act changes they're talking about because journalists have to be able to hold governments to account. I mean, there are things in my book that are probably a little uncomfortable and have ruffled a few feathers. People spoke to me anonymously mm. about privileged information. No lines were crossed with Official Secrets Acts. That's important. Yeah. Producing these exposés is important, yeah. and it's how we hold governments to account Yeah, in because a democracy. if they don't think anybody's going to hold them to account, God knows what they would do. I mean, this is how they behave when they know people are holding them to account. So, I mean, yeah. you know, don't give them any more ideas, is what I would say. Laura, stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a little short break. Laura Dodsworth is here. Uh, we're going to talk about masks. We're going to talk a bit more about Dominic Cummings as well, because... What about the Official Secrets Act and him, some people would say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Laura Dodsworth is here, uh, author of A State of Fear. I'm glad to, to, to know that the sales are going well, as you, as you say. How the UK government weaponised fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. Just before we talk about masks and the rather ludicrous kind of dichotomy that a lot of people are feeling now, mm. the reason I mentioned Dominic Cummings is just because it's, it's not because I want him to be done for anything or, or prosecuted or anything like that. It's just that a lot of the information he's, he's giving out, both in his appearance before the Select Committee and last night to Laura Kunzberg, seems to me to be information that he got that he got as an aide to the Prime Minister. And mm. you would think that that would be information which would be somehow protected by either, you know, a confidentiality clause in his contract or, you know, the Official Secrets Act or something. But he doesn't. He seems to be quite free to say whatever he wants. Well, I'm not sure, um, you know, what he would have signed. You'd have thought he'd <laughs> signed some kind of non-disclosure Official think. Secrets Act. Yeah. But... Um, the thing that I'm intrigued by is that people who would have written off anything he had to say before are just sucking it up at the moment. Yeah. They love it. And I he's know. not getting a very he's not getting a very critical 
for, he's, he's just not getting critical questions. Mm. Um, I think people are just so keen to use anything they can that supports their own position. Yeah. And that's not great journalism. It's really not. Let's talk about masks because mm. we now find ourselves in a place where we, I had a very interesting uh, set to with Chris Philp, the Home Office and Justice Minister the other day. Because right. I said to him, what's the legal position? If I go to the underground, which I haven't been to this week, and they say to me, please put a mask on, and I say, no, I don't want to. Um, what's the legal position? And he went, oh, well, it's the right thing to do. And I went, well, hang on a minute. If it's the right thing to do, why has Boris Johnson made it not any longer a legal requirement to do the right thing? What's all that about? And, and this idea that, you know, in order to show that you care, mm -hmm. in order to show that you're a decent person, you must wear a mask. Well, sorry, I'm not buying that. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'd pick up on there. One is the government's continually confused between law and guidance mm. all the way through the epidemic to their advantage, but to our detriment. Right. It should be very clear what's law and very clear what's a recommendation. And it, it, hasn't, and it isn't. No, it hasn't been all the way through. There are things that people thought were against the law, right. like hugging. Hugging yes. was never against the law. Right. Lots of lots of things. But it served the government, I think, to kind of obfuscate in that way. Um, the second thing that I've not been keen on is being told we should wear a mask out of courtesy. Mm. So there's either clear, hard evidence for wearing masks. There isn't. No. Um, but then that's the basis for wearing them. Or it's your choice. Yeah. You shouldn't be compelled out of a sense of courtesy or solidarity. Right. Because, you know, as a woman and someone who, you know, I'm a feminist... Mm. For me, it sounds a little bit like, well, you know, you should wear wear a higher cut top or yes. a longer skirt in order to not make people feel uncomfortable. Right. I mean, if somebody believes their mask works and it makes them feel comfortable to wear it, I'm really, I'm really happy with yeah. that, and I feel tired about have a it. With that. But I shouldn't have to wear a mask to make them feel better. No. It's like telling me to wear anything because it's not really a scientifically proven device. No. It's like an item of clothing, mm. and. It's not up to anyone else to tell me to, do, to be polite to them. I will be polite in all my public interactions, as always, yes. but it doesn't include covering my face. No, quite. And unfortunately, Chris Whitty was the one that kind of said that, wasn't it? Because he said mm. one of the circumstances under which he would wear a mask would be um, if it made people feel uncomfortable if he wasn't wearing one. And I'm like, well, what's that got to do with them? Or indeed you. And I think it's fine if he would do that out of courtesy, but he shouldn't be encouraging the nation to do that. Yeah. We don't we don't get um, manners lessons from the government. No. Well, I said this to Chris Philp. I said, you know, the fact that you have... Because he said, oh, it's the right thing for me to do. I said, no, you said it was the right thing to do, which mm. suggests that you think it's the right thing for everybody to do. And, and obviously he did think that, but he realised he couldn't really say that. But the point about the mask wearing is that, you know, we, I'm hearing, and, and it's interesting, I don't know where these phrases come from, but everywhere I go now, I see this sign that says, please wear a mask if you can. Mm. Now, people choose these words carefully, I assume. I've seen it in um, an email from a bus company. I've seen it in an email from taxi companies. I've seen it in an email from uh, supermarkets. I've heard an advert for a supermarket today saying, if you can. That's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? It is, but um, I think let's be generous about it because I think it's all part of a soft landing. Mm. A lot of people are very convinced that their masks are helpful and want to continue to use them, which is fine. And I think there's a lot of anxiety. Well, the anxiety has been very palpable yes. in the lead up to the yeah. 19th, to the relaxation no of restrictions. Question. Some people have been really terrified about it. So I think a soft landing into relaxing the restrictions isn't a bad thing mm. because people have to get used to it. I was talking to a psychologist called Dr. Mark Antonio Spada, who's coined the term COVID anxiety syndrome. Mm. And he was saying there are lots of people who'll be, um, you know, overly attached now to masks or not going to work or 
or behaviours that were important at a certain point of the epidemic but aren't now. Mm. And he was saying, just try one thing at a time. Like, if you don't want to go back to work, then go one day a week for a while to yeah. get used to it. If you don't want to take your mask off, we'll try taking it off in outdoor spaces and build up. Yeah. And we have to expect, we have to just accept there are a lot of people that are in that position. He said 20%. Mm. And so we have to help give everyone a soft landing. What I think is difficult is that I sense toler more tolerance from people who are like us, who yeah. are glad to see masks go, mm. then there is tolerance from people who want to keep them. Mm. And so that's difficult. But again, I think we're just going to have to be tolerant about but the I intolerance think, yeah. And for as now. time goes, I think fewer and fewer people will wear them because they'll see that other people are not wearing them and they'll yeah. maybe have the courage to take, take it off. Because a lot of people don't want trouble. A lot of people don't fancy being picked on or don't fancy having someone say to them put a mask on you know yeah. um and some certainly i mean we've had callers in the last 24 hours or so telling us that they've been to places in like pubs where they've said you still need to wear a mask and they're not quite sure what to do because nobody seems to know or seem, certainly nobody's told me what the legal position is if it's a private mm. operation i guess as a business you can refuse entry to anyone you want but if it's tfl and the, the the transportation system in this country, which people pay taxes to go on, mm. how can they say you can't go on? Well, there are still exemptions. Yeah. I mean, you know, if somebody has a protected characteristic, a disability or something like that, um, and it, that could be um, something that you can't see, like a mental yeah. health issue or autism. And they you, can't ask you about that either, can no, they? No, they can't require that people wear masks mm. if they have exemptions. So, so that's that. But I think the fact that people are so anxious about the masks now is is really the end point of what my book was about, A State of Fear. People's fear has been ramped up so much mm. that it's really hard to come back down from it. There was mm. never an exit strategy no. for these interventions like masks. There never like is, masks. is there? There's never an exit strategy. You're not my of rock either. I mean, I don't mind mentioning that, but, you know, every government strategy doesn't seem to ever have what do we do next as the, as the end point. No. The, the end point should be where do you want to finish? Mm. Well, that's we're over an epidemic, everyone's happy, they're relaxed, and we go back to normal. And not all of the interventions or strategies have been designed to get us to that end point. Mm. They've been designed to fight fire and deal with problems. Mm. Exactly right. Well, Laura, we're out of time, I'm afraid. You'll have to come back. You'll I'd have to come to. back next week. I'd love to. Let's get Laura back next week. Laura Dodsworth, thank you so much. A writer, author, filmmaker as well. We haven't even touched upon that. We'll talk about that next week. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let's talk to Tom Hunt, because this morning, uh, if you are paying attention in all of the papers, front page uh, pictures of uh, this boat, uh, RNI boat, with a load of um, migrants on it, migrant crossing crossings into Britain hit new record uh, the Telegraph has the same picture it looks like plus 700 people in the past two days alone uh, have come across the channel and in fact uh, the biggest day uh, the other day was 430 plus that was the day that Pretty Patella organised and announced that there was going to be new measures put in uh, which would mean that people trying to traffic other people would go to jail in this country. I'm not sure uh, if things have not got so bad that it really can't be brought back to reality. Let's talk to Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich, to get his view. Tom, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. This appears now to be such a massive problem and such a massive business that I'm not sure anything other than really, really drastic measures are going to work, are they? I, yeah, I mean, I, I sympathise with that view. I mean, I, I was obviously very pleased to to support the bill that I supported yesterday and spoke in favour of. Um, and I think that will help a lot, actually, that bill being approved. But uh, but yeah, in the short term, um, I, I would I do think everything 
should be on the table. All options should be on the table. Yes, absolutely um, right. Because it would appear, I mean, Priti Patel's appearing before the select committee this morning at Home Affairs, um, and she hasn't been able to give them a number of how many of the arrivals this year have been sent back. I think the, the problem with that is that probably none of them have. Well, I think this bill, which we, we supported yesterday, will help us send med- the vast majority of them back or potentially even stop them from stepping foot on our shores in the first place. So, But I can I can well understand how people are as frustrated as they are and the fact that we're going to have to wait for this bill to have its third reading and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be some time until we can really see the benefits of that bill. Yeah. Uh, and, and ahead of us, we've got a summer warm weather where we could have you know, uh, many, many hundreds, thousands of more of these uh, illegal crossings. So I, I am in favour of the government take a, a very, very robust approach this summer. And, and as I say, uh, all options should be on the table. What we are seeing is is, is lawlessness. You know, we, we did have a, a majority of people in this country voted to take back control of our Orders, I mean, they you know flick on the TV and they see this. Mm. You know, it's it's, it's infuriating. Well, uh, it's a free for all now, isn't it, Tom? I mean, the problem it seems to me is that because it's such a big business now, it's basically organised crime, uh, organised yes. human trafficking, almost as though uh, they were yes. smuggling drugs, but instead of drugs, it's people. Well, we, we, these are these are people who who have shunned the law of this country. They've decided to break our immigration law. Mm. You know, the, um, you know, many of it's sort of eighty percent of them, I think, are sort of young men. You know, and and for every single um, economic migrant we have who comes here illegally and stays here, it, it it also actually limits our capacity to show compassion towards the most genuine of mm. refugees who are actually fleeing war zones as opposed to. France, yeah, you know, so and, and you know, we saw yesterday. You know, I was I was amazed, really. I thought maybe the Labour Party might there might be an outbreak of common sense, and the, the Labour Party might, you know, uh, you know, support the bill yesterday. But but they actually voted against it. And in fact, Labour Speaker after Labour Speaker essentially accused anyone who supports this bill of being as being racist. You know, well, that's and, the only which, language they know now, isn't it? Well, it's the only language they know, and I, you know, and I think that. I mean, I was criticized. I mean, I mean, I, you know, he was criticizing the Labour shadow minister was criticizing a minister saying that this two-tier approach is wrong, and you know, treating those who are sort of trying to get here legally and and coming illegally as refugee shouldn't be treated differently than those who are coming here illegally mm-hmm. and, and and largely potentially not refugees. You know, and we also had Yvette Cooper do a urgent question not long ago on Napier Barracks saying that accommodation that is good for British soldiers is somehow, I mean, essentially the Labour Party approaches to open borders, anyone can come in, once you're in, you're in. Uh, and actually they want to put them up in hotels as well. You know, they want to put them up mm-hmm. in hotels. So, you know, that is the Labour Party uh, position. But, you know, it's no good us just, you know, bashing Labour on this. You know, we, we, we have to deliver. And, and in my speech yesterday, I said, look, this bill is very welcome. I know that um, uh, both uh, Pretty and also Chris Philp have worked incredibly hard on it. You know, and we, we could all feel good yesterday, in a sense, because we, we, we knew we were speaking on, on the side of the, the, the majority of the public. Yes. But, you know, if, if in sort of six months' time down, down the road, we're still dealing with this issue and it still hasn't been addressed. You know, that's not going to be, feel, that's not going to feel very good. So well, that you, is we the need, problem, isn't it? Yeah. Because that, that has yeah. been the case all the way through pretty much Pretty Patel's reign as, as Home Secretary, because everything, every time she's made a statement yeah. that it's going to get better and it's going to change, it never really does. And it's kind of ironic that the unveiling of the yeah. bill was in the same week where uh, you basically crossed the number from last yeah. year uh, and yeah. it's already 8,000 people have come. And it's also the Tory party that's putting them up in hotels. The Labour Party might want to, but you guys are actually doing it. 
Well, I, that's like that's pretty much stopped now. I mean, they're being put Has up it? in. Uh, they're not going in. They, they you know, they they are the vast majority of them are going in places like Napier Barracks and you know and 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 you know. But I, I'm pro this idea of an offshore, you know, mm. processing their claims offshore. You know, because ultimately, you know, at the moment the message seems to be once you're in, you're in. Yeah, it's worth the risk. You know, it's worth the risk. It's worth paying these people, people smugglers. You know, but we've got to. Uh, you know, I mean, and I, I know whenever I sort of go on my Facebook page, and which is largely my constituents who sort of follow me, and I post something about illegal immigration, you know, the, the pretty much the responses I'm getting is, "Look, we're sick of talk. You yeah. know, we're sick of talk. We want action." I mean, yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I think in Parliament, I've been one of the most probably vo- vocal Conservative MPs on this issue. And I, as I say, I mean, I. I, I just, you know, I mean, some people say, well, why don't you just go in, intercept the boats in the channel and just take them back to France? Mm. You know, I, I guess the, the question I'd like to ask is, well, actually, what would happen if we did that? You know, would it, what international law would it be, would it infringe? And and what would the consequence be? But actually, if I think, you know, the British people saw the, you know, saw us, you know, taking the ball by the horns and having that kind of approach enough is enough this must stop now i actually think that the government would find a huge amount of the public behind them mm. you know the, the british public are you know they are they are the vast majority of britons are poor races and they want us to show compassion to genuine refugees but what they do not want is this lawlessness what they do not want are, are those people breaking the law i mean if you're somebody who's going to come here uh, illegally from another safe european country and you're prepared to break the law to do that are you the sort of individual we want in this country in any way right. more than well, that's the other. I mean, there are two. There are two problems, really, aren't there? Because one, at the moment, for example, if I was to go to France uh, to go and visit somebody, I would have to come back to this country in quarantine for fourteen days because those are now the yeah. new rules, as per the Grant Shapps announcement last week. However, I, what I don't know is whether any of these people are quarantining for fourteen days. I don't know who they are. I suspect many people uh, who are checking them in don't know who they are because they've probably got rid of their papers. We don't know whether they're coming here for a nefarious purpose or whether they're genuinely coming here to to try and make a better life for themselves. There's just not enough knowledge that the, well, the populace if, if has. They, if they want to come here to make a better life for themselves, uh, then you know they should apply, you know, for, immig- for legal immigration status. Uh, they should they should go through the same process that you know millions of others have gone through. Uh, and we can make a determination. Our government, our elected government, can make a determination about whether that individual is the sort of individual we'd like in this country, whether they can bring something to the table in terms of their skills, in terms of their ability to integrate and contribute. You know, We can make that determination at the moment. You've basically got people smugglers making that determination, and it's based on your ability to pay them and mm. to come across. So... Um, but, but no, also, I, I, I think also, yeah. Tom, a lot of it is based upon a kind of a, a, a bill of sale, if you like, whereby if they haven't got the money, uh, they they promise to pay the money later. So they then sort of find themselves working in a black market. They find themselves working uh, in sort of, you know, criminal enterprises in order to repay the people traffickers that have got them here in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the whole the whole thing is just um, has brings all sorts of different negatives. So but what we are doing and what we have had is and I think it is right that we this is not uh, this is quite a difficult issue to sort out. The legal system, the legal establishment is absolutely against what we're doing, what we're looking to do here as a government. Mm. Uh, and Priti Patel uh, and Chris Philp have worked particularly hard to get us to this stage. So, you know, and I've spoken to Chris Philp in particular about this on multiple occasions. And I know how passionate he was. He, he is about sorting this out. Uh, and I think if anyone's going to sort it out, it's going to be that duo. You know, they're going to sort it out. But we need to uh, we need to sort of, and, and, and I, and I re- it is slightly frustrating, isn't it, about the situation about the, 
you know, I understand we have to cooperate with the French, but, you know, is it surprising that the French haven't been massively cooperative mm. when it comes to addressing this issue? I mean, when have the French ever been particularly cooperative No, anything? Well, it's worse than I mean, that, isn't it? Because they, these are the so, same yeah. people who escort the, some of these boats into English yeah, waters yeah. and then leave them there. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, we, 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 we don't, we, we left the European Union. One of the main reasons why people voted to leave the European Union is so we could take back control of our borders. Not we can take back control of our borders if the French decide to play ball this week or that week. Yeah. And that's that does seem a little bit like what's happening at the moment. So I'm not surprised the French haven't delivered on this for us. You know, we need to take control of the situation for ourselves, both through this bill, but also in the short term, being open minded about the different techniques that we may want to employ mm. to prevent what is happening. Uh, because it's it's as I say, it's it's lawlessness. Uh, the, the people who are coming over are lawbreakers. They have uh, shun the law of the land, you know, and essentially, I mean, if, if you break a law, if you knowingly break a law, does that make you a criminal? Yeah, I would have thought so. Well, they've knowingly broken the immigration law. Does that make them a criminal? I would have thought so. Well, there we go. I mean, there that we doesn't go. seem difficult to me, that one. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, you know, we get all these howls of outrage from the left and from the Labour Party. You know, and I think, you know, when the Labour Party pointed us, when the Labour Party pointed us and say, you're racist because, you know, you want a rules-based immigration system. You're racist because you don't want to turn a blind eye to lawlessness. They're not just pointing their finger at us as Conservative MPs. They are pointing their finger at millions of ex-Labour voters up and down the country. That is what they're doing. Mm. That is what they're doing. You know, the Labour Party, increasingly, they're a party of open borders. They're a party of lawlessness. They're a party of, you know... Well, the list goes on, doesn't it, really? But, I mean, I, I don't think that Keir Starmer's learned anything. No, I don't think the Labour Party have learned anything. But as I say, I'm not in politics to just endlessly take a pop at the Labour Party. I want this. I want us to deliver. You know, in Ipswich, you know, we're we're a port town. You know, this matters greatly to many of my constituents. I'm I'm contacted. I mean, there's lots of Conservative voters who are you know at the point where their frustration is, you know, is absolutely. And there's so much that we haven't been able to do over the last year, and we've all had to you know play by rules. And you, you see this degree of lawlessness on the English Channel needs to be stopped. It does absolutely right, Tom. Well, we will put our trust in you to stop it, but let's make something happen before the end of this year, because otherwise people are not going to be happy at all. Tom Hunt MP uh, for Ipswich up there uh, in the Tory Party talking about how yes, it is time that something was done because this is a ridiculous situation. People are literally walking into this country who are not entitled to be here. They're breaking the law in order to be here. They're paying money to people who break the law on a regular basis, who are running an organised criminal enterprise called human trafficking. And it has to stop. It's quite simple. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 